So tonight is the full moon in the month of Asala and um, this is a very auspicious full moon in the Buddhist calendar um, because it it, um, signifies the time when the Buddha gave the discourse of the Four Noble Truths and it's the beginning of the three month rainy season. So Colorado is right on schedule with the rainy season. Usually the, you know, we're opposite our rainy season is um, at a different time from the south, southern, southeastern rainy season. So in a, in a traditional context, the three-month rainy season is the time when um, monastics stay in one monastery and spend more time doing intensive meditation and studying of the monastic discipline together. So the way that the Buddha set it up was is there, there were usually a few disciples that would gather around a teacher that they somebody had an affinity with and they spent nine months out of the year wandering. And then when the rains got to be so intense that the crops were flooded and they were risking damaging the crops by walking through them, um, then they made a determination to stay in one place for those three months. So it was it was a kind of a, a wandering order. And because there were just a few people connected to one particular teacher, then the three months began a time for... The, the community to consolidate the, the, their understanding and to review what the, what the Buddha had said and to see about different ways of practicing the discipline. And, you know, in a Western context, we have all kinds of interesting paradoxes. So the summertime, which is the best time of travel, is the time when we're supposed to be staying put. And in a Western context, it's usually that we're staying in a monastery, you know, 10 or 11 months out of a year and wandering one. And so we have all these kind of interesting conundrums where the original intention and lifestyle of the Buddha is somehow um, at odds with the, the reality of what happens in a monastic life in a Western context. At least that was our experience living in England because the weather was inclement for much of the year. And um, it, you know, just, it wasn't possible really to live at the root of the tree in the wintertime. It was just too cold and too damp. So we needed to have buildings and things like that that we were staying in. So um, so here we are, um, Asala Puja, full moon. And I have a um, remarkable experience, which is that uh, my father just passed away. I can't believe it's just yesterday, but it's just yesterday. So I'm like still full of all of that. And, and, and yet... Um, I'm very tired because I got an hours and a half sleep last night, so I don't I don't feel very well rested. But there's a kind of calmness that I feel, which is um, I think it has to do with the the level to which I was able to spend time with him these last two years, and the fact that I feel very current with him, and that really completely caught up and current and. The fact that even though um, none of us in the family actually got to say goodbye, his departure was not when any of us was around. And 
it was unexpected on that level. There was a sense for me of, you know, my dad was a real incredible fighter. And he was absolutely determined to fight as long as he could. And he did that. He fought as long as he could. And when he couldn't fight any longer, he left. He was gone. You know, it was time to go. And there was something about, I don't know what. I don't know why it is that there's such a sense of calmness in my system. But I think part of it has to do with the fact that, you know, he's been sick for a really, really long time. And the last few years in particular have been very filled with, you know, lots of hospital visits and challenges and discomfort. And his world has been more and more confined and contained. And and I just, I feel the release of the pain of his body. And the, the clarity of his not wanting to wait until he was so diminished that he had no more capacity to um, make choices. And I feel a sense of respect for him for you know what he's done. And and yet I can also see the effects of that and how there's been some edges to that that are actually quite extraordinarily challenging for the rest of my family to process and make sense out of and come to terms with. But did you meet my dad, Darcy? Did you know him? So none of you got to know my dad. None of you met him. He was a most remarkable human being. And part of the reason why he was so remarkable was because he was, I think, probably the most brilliant person I have ever met in terms of an intellect that was um, spanning many, many different kinds of um, interests in science and cosmology and quantum theory and astronomy and physics and um, and his capacity for research and his capacity for um, thought in in new areas was uh, just extraordinary and uh, and I've learned you know an enormous amount from him I remember I don't remember the actual scene but I remember the photograph of it you know I think I was probably three and I was sitting in his lap and there's a picture of me holding this book called life book and the life book you know covered me because I was a little person that covered me from like my nose all the way down to my you know halfway through my shins and what dad used to love to do with us when we were little was we would play um, a game and we could we would go pick the book we wanted, whatever which one we wanted, and open it up and he would just, you know, speak to us about what it was that we were we were looking at at whatever level we were at. And so um, we got to pick where we would start in the book or what we were, you know, and so there was a kind of curiosity and exploration about life in all of its manifestations and myriad expressions that was something that he was really adept at. And so as a as an intellectual entrepreneur, he was willing to take, you know, phenomenal risks in exploring thoughts that would leave most people both flabbergasted how he got there as well as totally unsettled because it was outside of the normal comfort zones of where we normally go with our thinking. But he was also um, adamant that um, that we learn from a very young age to think for ourselves and to challenge to challenge authority. 
And he used to deliberately um, tell us things that were incorrect so that we would get practiced at saying, Daddy, that's ridiculous, you know? It's not like that, you know? And so he wanted us to know how to think for ourselves so that we could we could challenge anybody who was an authority through our own deductive thinking about what was correct. And in one of the areas that he excelled at was in medical management, of being able to track your own medical conditions and question doctors and decide for yourself what the treatment protocol was going to be, independent of how intimidating or uh, um, how much authority the medical people had. And I remember one instance in particular where this probably had the difference on the fact that I'm still alive. Because I was in India, and it had been after the bear event, and I had a whole series of injections because of rape for rabies. And I got um, very, very, very sick. I had 105 fever. And in India, it's often the case when you're really sick, like you just weather it. You know, you just, that's kind of the deal. You go to India, but you get a visa, and you get sick, and that's just what happens. But because of everything that I'd been through, I knew that I needed to, I needed to know what was happening. I couldn't just let it ride. And so I went to go to different medical centers to get um, checked out. And in India, you know, I, I think, you know, if you want to be a doctor, you just carve out a sign that says doctor, and you put it over your door, and you're a doctor. And, I mean, I have no idea what the actual rigors are of medical standards. But the sense is, is that they're somewhat different than what we're used to. So I had gotten off the train with 105 fever and was kind of like, you know, falling on my face, basically. And I was trying to figure out what was the matter with me. And so I hobbled into one of these little places. And the doctor examined me. And he said I had malaria and I should take some malaria medicine. So, you know, I had 105. So my cognitive functions were not operating at optimum level, you know. But I said, you know, I won't take the medicine unless I know for sure what actually the problem is. Can you send me to a lab so that I can get the blood tested? And he looked at me like I just, you know, walked off of some strange planet. He said, of course you're right. You know, and I'll get, you know, let's get you to the best lab that we've got in town, and they'll have you test your blood. So we got to this place, and I went up the stairs, and they took my blood, and they were incredibly, in, Eng- in India, they are unbelievably hospitable to people who are visitors. It's like a cultural, um, tremendous cultural value that for anybody who is a visitor, it's their duty to take exceptional care of you. So I was in this clinic, and they draw some blood, and I was watching the lab technician looking under the microscope at, at the blood. And then the doctor came out and said, you don't have malaria, you've got typhoid, take the medicine. So I went to the pharmacist and I bought the medicine. And I, you know, your brains are not really that sharp when you've got 105, you know. So I had the medicine, I bought the medicine, I was having a hard time standing up. And I thought, I watched him look under the microscope. There's no way that he could actually know that I have typhoid from looking under the microscope. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I need to go to a clinic where they actually do medicine that makes sense to me, and they can find out what what the thing is. So I went to to Delhi, and I had the name of a clinic that was excellent, and I got there, and they did some blood tests, and it turned out I had hepatitis A from water 
uh, poisoning or water contamination. Now, what I didn't know was is that typhoid medicine is highly, highly liver toxic. Okay, so if I hadn't been thinking and watching and tracking what had happened, and I'd just taken the medicine because the doctor told me to, who knows what the results were? But not good, you know, not good news, right? To be able to do something like that when you're that sick was like that was the result of from when I was two years old. <laughs> And the kind of training that happened from I was two years old of dad saying, think for yourself, track it, know what they're saying, follow it, does it make sense to you? If it doesn't make sense, ask more questions. Don't take medicine until you know why you're taking it and you know it's the right thing, okay? And so, you know, there are just all kinds of examples like that where, you know, what dad offered in terms of his intellectual entrepreneurship of a willingness to take risks and think of things and innovate and challenge created a foundation for me that allowed me to do stuff that I have seen many of my colleagues not be able to manage, you know. And in that particular situation, it made have, might have, might have meant the difference about why I'm still here, you know. So an enormous passion for scientific inquiry an enormous tenderness of heart in in, uh, in in the family and taking care of the family. And so, um, yeah, he, Dad, Dad was very, very, very smart and in a research program in uh, University of Chicago. And, um, you know, he tells the story that he um, was in a, a, a lab and there was a, there was a bunch of things that were happening. They were trying to figure out the way nerve impulses were firing. And something happened in that lab where he he could figure it out, the sequencing of how it is that nerves actually fire. And he knew the whole, he figured the whole thing out as a thought experiment in his head. And I don't know how many years later they actually did the research and substantiated the, the sodium pumps and the, it wasn't actually an, uh, an electrical signal that was moving. It was an electrical signal that was being uh, carried through the uh, sodium pumps, through the nerves. So what he tells and has told many times was is, is that in his own mind he had figured out the nerve impulse in the sodium pumps before they did the research and substantiated which got him the Nobel Prize. But what was always tender was is, is that he would say, but you know, I'm glad that I didn't do that because if I'd done that, I wouldn't have had my two children and my two children for me are the most important things in my whole life. And so, you know, my brother and I have been a source of pride and joy for him that's just been enormous. And, you know, I don't know that I have any other fan or had any other fan that would wax lyrical more abundantly than my dad. You know, he was just absolutely um, in praises of, of the things that I could say or speak or do and the way that I would be able to uh, articulate what it was that I needed to do and frame it in a perspective that gave me a sense of confidence. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, 
people come from conditioning where they feel their parents put a lid on them in terms of what they are able to achieve and how they're able to view themselves. And that absolutely was not the case in my family. So both of my parents and my both of my parents really totally celebrated the fact that, you know, we could do anything that we wanted to do and they would support us to do that. You know, we had the capacity to do what we wanted to do and they would support us to do that. And so when I became a nun, you know, it was an interesting journey because for my dad, you know, I, I, dad was always, he's an intellectual. He's a diehard intellectual. He's an orthodox intellectual. He's not a spiritual person. And so, you know, when I was meditating and going on retreats and all the rest of that, I talked to dad about what I was doing and he changed the subject in, you know, 10 seconds or he'd ask me questions like, you know, did you, did you master the technique? You know, it's like, so it was like dad just, Dad didn't understand it. He just didn't get it. But after India, when I came back, and it was really pretty evident to him how close I came to nearly dying because of the the bear and then the illnesses and all the rest of that, something had shifted in him. And you know, to my real surprise, he really got it that that there was an enormous value in what it was I was doing, even though I had never seen any inclination in him about that before. You know. So dad, you know, he said to me, he said to me, you know, I give you my highest blessings to go and to be a nun. He said, but mind you, I'd, I'd feel more comfortable if you did something in the catalog and had a house and kids near enough by that we could, you know, we could visit, we could know, you know. So, but that was dad, you know, grand-hearted. And dad also had a remarkably um, coarse sense of humor, which I sort of picked up. And I remember one of his parting remarks to me before I became a nun and left for the monastery was he said in a, in a kind of a smile that was that was um, very quizzical. And I don't remember who he was quoting, but uh, he said to me, he said, you know, one of the most underrated things in the entire universe is a good bowel movement. And one of the most overrated things in the entire universe is sexual intercourse. <laughs> That's dad, you know. He speaks it like it is. You know? <laughs> Absolutely speaks it like it is. So with that blessing, I went off to the monastery. <laughs> and when he came and visited, and he did twice, you know, it was really incredibly powerful times for him that he came. And on the eve of the of my ordination, he wrote this poem, which is known as the Children of the Universe, and you know, I've carried it around with me ever since he wrote it. And this is dad. This is dad. This totally is an expression of dad. Children of the universe, let us light a candle tonight in loving memory of all our beloved family and dear friends who have left this brief life too soon. We shall always hold you in our hearts with love and devotion and treasure that precious time we had together. It's our deepest hope and desire that your body and soul and spirit and life force Return to the universe ever so gently, always nurtured and sustained by the love and affection we send you. May all dearly departed ease your journey towards infinity, guide you towards eternal peace, and surround you with love and beauty forever. And there is more to behold. 
And let us surely honor and respect those generations that preceded us for 5,500 years in the Hebrew faith and traditions of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the unimaginable suffering our people endured. And there's more to behold. Let us honor and respect those countless multitudes struggling since the dawn of civilization 12,000 years ago in the crucible of nature that shaped cultures and nations. And there's more to behold. Let us honor and respect the family of man emerging from the forest primeval 8 million years ago fighting fiercely to survive launching human destiny. And there's more to behold. Let us honor and respect all our biological ancestors as well evolving miraculously from that fateful moment when life began our planet from dust four billion years ago. And there's more to behold. Let us honor and respect the sun and the mother earth formed five billion years ago in cosmic fire and fury then nurtured and sustained in an unbroken chain the fragile life we treasure today. And there's more to behold. Surely we must honor and respect the universe itself with all of its mysteries, created 14 billion years ago out of the void, at the beginning of time and space, and still unfolding. And there is more to behold. And at last we will honor and respect our present family and friends, and those yet to be born whose destiny will carry our hopes and dreams and aspirations along with their own through future generations on their inexorable march towards eternity. And there's more to behold. For truly we are children of the universe, minds yearning for wisdom and spirits striving for enlightenment, made of elements forged in the very stars, heirs to the sustaining teachings and tradition of family, faith, and civilization, blessed with freedom and internally grateful for the love and devotion so generously bestowed upon us with the gift of life itself. Dedicated this day for all that has passed and all that which is yet to come. So that's that. And so in these last years, you know, watching him with illness and struggling, and also seeing the incredible beauty and love with which my brother and my sister-in-law invited them into their home and looked after them, and Rose his great-granddaughter, you know, the way she would um, do her bit, you know, so on days when Dad wasn't feeling well, she'd come into bed with him with her with her tigers and her teddies and snuggle up with him and, and, and help him feel better, which it, it did. And on days, you know, that where the teddies and the, and the tigers were not going to do the trick, she played piggy with Dad, you know, you know, to count his piggies. And so there's this... Um, a tenderness as well as uh, just the ache of what happens watching a person age and their world narrow and their life becoming more um, kind of concentrically circled around the immediacy of their own illnesses and the limitations around that. And so for my brother and I, I mean, one of the things that's been amazing about being here is, is not only have I had more contact with my dad, which has been very... Um, a place of enormous resolve and healing, but I've had more contact with my brother than I've had since we were teenagers, because for the last 20 years I've lived in England, and I'd come out, you know, once or twice a year, but basically I didn't have much time together. And so together we would watch him and his own processes, which 
had enormous intellectual acuity, but oftentimes would seem to us like, wow, you know, how is it that that you're in this kind of space? And just wondering how this was all going to resolve. And then, um, and for myself, just wondering how, how, you know, so the sisters in England have, we've chanted for him and we've held him in our hearts and we've done prayers and all these things that there would be a way that something would emerge that would be an easeful way for him, you know, how this is all going to resolve. And when I came back from, um, you know, California, what was interesting to me was something had shifted for him. It was like, you know, his mind was absolutely determined with his medical protocols that he had done research himself. So he'd found these substances to treat his own illness after he'd gone through all of the treatment protocols and he couldn't get any more help from the medical doctors. And so he found a whole bunch of stuff that he started using himself. And he was convinced that they were the things that were going to help him and that was going to work. And as long as he was convinced in that, he was prepared to to stay in this process of, 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 of working to see that he could find a way to get better. But when I came back from Colorado, something had shifted, and it was like he, he, he'd realized that it wasn't working. You know, the protocol wasn't working. And I think that's when, you know, his mind started coalescing around, well, now what? Now what do we do from here? So, you know... My brother and I and the family, we have, you know, the processing of loss and uh, the getting used to the fact that Dad's no longer with us and uh, the realization of what it's like to have the gifts of one's parents and have to, the feelings of missing, you know, just what it's like to miss him. And that, you know, it's also fascinating to me that the day before he died, I was outside because the light was just absolutely spectacular. And I went up on this little hill and I was watching, and there was a perfect double rainbow. Absolutely perfect double rainbow from one end of the sky to the other end of the sky. And it illuminated the Garden of the Gods. And I've never seen a rainbow that landed on the rocks before. It's the first time. And then... um, while they were taking him and they were going to take his body to the coroner's office, I was chanting some chants for him, and the wind started whipping up. This incredible wind started whipping up. And in the morning, the day that he did die, I had had this dream, and I didn't understand it because I was trying to place it in another context. But it was a dream of a hawk that was just circling me overhead. It started out like miles and miles above overhead, and then it flew down and flew down and flew down and flew down until it landed right on my chest and looked at me right in the eyes and said, it was like, you know, here I am, you know, can you see me, kind of thing. And so the juxtaposition of my father dying on the eve of a sala puja that speaks about the Four Noble Truths and speaks about picking up and investigating suffering and understanding where the cause of it actually is and bringing our attention to that as the place where right there is this place where we can experience the release from suffering is for me just like dad 
you know, as much as he loved what I did, he never understood very much about my life at all in terms of the dates and the ceremonies and what it meant. He would have had no clue that this was a Sala Puja, you know, or the significance of it, you know. But the, the quintessence of the Buddha's teaching comes through the Four Noble Truths. And to have this happen together on the eve of when my father died, for me, is a kind of rich, I don't know, cosmic explosion that's still kind of rippling through my own system about what this means and how to process it in a way that is like, yeah, this is absolutely perfect for Dad. You know, this is perfect timing for Dad. So, and I think for each of us, you know, our bodies get older. We experience sickness. It's not always that we grow old, but we will all die. And we have parents. We watch our parents grow older. A deer, a doe, just walked right in front of the meditation hall. Wow. Let's see if she's followed by her fawns. Anyway. And so um, this is the reality that comes with life. You know, we have these bodies. And yet one of the things that I was talking to Dad about a couple of weeks ago was uh, the idea of original original goodness, original, original bliss, rather than original sin. Because growing up in a Judeo-Christian culture, you know, we get a lot of conditioning about you know, basically, if we're born, it's because we've messed up. You know, something's gone wrong. But the Buddhist understanding is, is, is that the what's left when everything falls away is is uh, is luminous and clear. It has no suffering and it has no ignorance in it. It's all pervasive. It's everywhere. And so, uh, you know, when I think of Dad, you know, his body is no longer with us, and I have just I just wonder whether he's able to connect with this all-pervasive mind, the original bliss of what's there when the fear and the confusion and the habits fall away. And it has always been my hope that whatever goodness that I could bring in my life, that I could hold a, a mirror or a space that could help him osmotically get a sense of what that was. So... As daughter, it's not possible for me to teach dad. That's just not happening. <laughs> but I can embody something, and he totally gets it. You know. So you know, over these last two and a half years, when I've been back in Colorado, you know, sometimes I've seen him, and he's been really, really unwell. But it's always been the pace that after I've spent some time sitting with him, he feels better. So I saw him just the day before he died, and we had a lovely time together. And, you know, I had no idea it was going to be the last time I saw him. You know, I had no idea. But this is sometimes the way it is with people. This is the last time, and we have no idea it's going to be the last time. So I have a lot of um, gratitude.
and you know dad is with me in my thinking my habits my capacity to speak out to stand on my own to say what I need to say even if there's quite significant risks that are involved and uh, in just knowing there's tremendous love all our great great things to know so um, I offer this for reflection this evening.